On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we welcome Nita Prose. Nita is the author of The Maid, which has sold over 1 million copies worldwide and has been published in more than 40 countries. A number one New York Times bestseller and a Good Morning America book pick, The Maid won the Ned Kelly Award for International Crime Fiction and was an Edgar Award finalist for Best Novel. She lives in Toronto, Canada. Wait, Toronto? If you're one of us, you'll, you'll say Toronto. Uh, okay. <laughs> oh, I've never heard that one. <laughs> In a house that is moderately clean, which I adore. Her new novel, The Mystery Guest, is out now. Do people well welcome, Nita? Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yay, Yay. So happy to have you. Do people are they curious about your cleaning interests and abilities? Mm-hmm. And are are they really? It's yes. That, it's that literal. <laughs> yes, yes, they are. You know, and I, I get it because I'm a reader too. And so you always wonder how much of the writer is in the story or makes their way into a protagonist. And in my case with Molly, you know, I think people have that natural question. Well, is Nita like this too? And mm-hmm. I am, but not, not. <laughs> to such an extreme. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And really the only thing I like about cleaning, unlike Molly, is when it's done. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Such satisfaction, it's, honestly. Exactly. Of having cleaned. It's like having written. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It's a big burden and it's done and you feel a sense of satisfaction. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, uh, welcome again. Can we get the elevator pitch for the mystery guest? What, sure. what can people expect with this one? Sure. So um, it is a standalone novel, although it does certainly recognize readers of The Maid. Um, Readers will um, see some of the characters that they might have liked in the first book, including Molly and her beloved Grand. But you'll also uh, come across a whole new mystery that's taking place at the Regency Grand Hotel when a world-renowned, somewhat reclusive author drops dead, very dead, very, very dead <laughs> on the Regency Grand's tea room floor. Um, but in this novel, we also take a journey back to the past and we travel into Molly's childhood when she was only 10 years old. And she worked alongside her uh, grand one summer when her grand was a maid working in a luxurious, if somewhat foreboding mansion where there also happened to be an author Mm -hmm. Um, because it's only through this journey back in time through Molly's memory that she can unlock the clues that are going to lead to solving the mystery in the present tense. Yes. Yes. Mm, We're going to talk about that aspect, the structure, but I do want to start with Molly. As you said, she is back. Um, She is no longer the maid in training. She's ascended to the role of head maid. Uh, Her voice, though, is still just so strong in this one. And I read an interview in which you said or described how her voice originally came to you and that you were on a plane with no paper. So you grabbed a napkin and wrote the prologue of The Maid, which is in a single burst, I believe you said. Um, So clearly that voice of hers has has been with you. and, And so I'm interested to hear sort of now, um, this time around, where we find Molly, for you as the writer, you know, I know it's hard, you know, the character had a journey. And now she's back. um, And where you wanted to take her on on this this time around? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. And, you know, the difficulty for me was when uh, readers discovered Molly, many of them really fell for her. And that was my hope. So that was very gratifying. 
Um, and I got one consistent comment from readers, which was, I want more Molly. Give me yeah. more. More Molly, more Molly, more Molly. And, you know, publishers hear that yeah. and authors hear that. Uh, but the challenge for this writer was I didn't uh, plan this as a series, you know. Uh, so I really had to give that some thought. And I decided that the only way I would offer more is if I didn't offer less, if I figured out a way mm. to not offer less and to do damage to a character that the second I finished that book, I didn't feel was mine anymore. You know, she wasn't mine. I put her out in the world and then she belonged to readers and readers could decide, you know, how they felt about her. Um, and it turns out that some of them really responded well and, and were quite fond. So I wanted to do justice to that in the second right. book. And for a while, I wasn't sure how I could do it. And just like with the first time around, it was like this sort of uh, gift from the gods that descends mm. in this singular moment that feels almost super, supernatural, but isn't because your brain is working away on this problem at the back of your brain. And you don't realize. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. um, but this time around, I was on tour with the maid and I was in the UK and I visited this castle museum outside of Brighton in a little town called Lewes. And I stumbled across this display case in the museum and inside was the most unusual pairing of items, a mummified body of a rat <laughs> and a single silver spoon. Oh okay. This is true. I'm not making this up. Wow. So I looked at this and I thought, what the heck is this? And there was a little description underneath and it told the story of this young servant girl who had worked in the castle in the 17th century and had been unceremoniously dismissed after having been accused of stealing a piece of silverware. And mm. she swore she didn't do it, but it didn't matter. She was frog marched out the door. And then years later, when builders were renovating the castle, they opened up the walls and lo and behold, what did they find? The but the mummified body of a rat. Ugh. And beside that in the rat's nest, that spoon. silver spoon. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what to say. For some reason, that <laughs> true-to-life story with, with its little sousson of a cautionary tale, yes, it just mm -hmm. had, like, other things echo with it, little phrases like, you know, be careful what you assume, nothing mm -hmm. is ever as it seems, and the past will never stay buried forever. Sort of with that background echoing in my head, that became the symbolic tapestry behind this book, behind the mystery guest, and yeah. notion of a maid who would be wrongly dismissed for theft, mm -hmm. and that there might be another mystery deeper than that mm -hmm. in the past. Those two notions really congealed in my head after that, and it, it became the basis for this book. Oh, oh my gosh. That incredible. is fantastic. And of course, with that story that you're talking, justice, I'm like, how can justice ever be done and and maybe you give us that in this book. So mm -hmm. I, which we didn't get in that in that real life story. So I love that. I also love that you. Every author knows you have to give away the book when you publish it and let it be the reader's book. And then you have to you've had to kind of take Molly back too. Uh, that's an interesting journey. That that's maybe, true. I never really thought of it that yeah. way. Um, yeah. yeah, I give her away and then I bring her back. And I find out more about her yeah. life yep, that I can exactly. deliver. And yeah. you met her in a different place. She's met other people, and that comes back to you as as well. I, I want to talk about the structure. 
Uh, the story unfolds with chapters that are both in the present day, the mystery, and the chapters from before when Molly was a young girl, as you've already mentioned. The structure is so great because it serves both plot and character. It connects Molly to what's happening in the present day and also allows us, the reader, to understand her. We see her background, we see her childhood, and of course, we see more interactions with Gran. Tell us about your decision to structure it this way and when you knew this is how I have to do that. Uh, you know, I really wanted the reader to understand how the past impacts the present in psychological and emotional ways. And I wanted to extend Molly's journey of growth. So in the first book, she begins the book in, you know, a state of abject grief. She's fairly recently lost her grandmother and she's trying to navigate the world for the very first time, completely on her own. And to do so, she brings her grandmother back to life in a way. Her grandmother becomes this voice in her head that guides her and serves as a navigational moral compass throughout the entire book. And that happens in the second book as well. But Molly has grown now. So we have two moral compasses, her own and her own voice. She's come into herself and Grand's at the same time. And that was something I was really interested in. So Molly can move away from really uh, examining her own self and delves into understanding who Gran was mm -hmm. and how that has impacted who she is today. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm really interested in that sort of resurrection, how the dead are gone and yet they can sometimes in absence be more present than they were in real life. Yeah. That's something I've certainly experienced in my own life, certainly with my mother who passed um, away many years ago, or as Molly would say, she died. Why call it anything other than what it was? She did not go gently. She died. Um, but, you know, when she did that, I started to hear this essential voice in my head. You know, it was a distillation of who she was in her real life, dedicated only to me and to guiding me. It's a oh creation gosh. I know I made for myself because I needed it and because I missed her so profoundly. And she echoes in my voice, to, in, in my head to this day. Mm. And that was something I wanted to instill in this, in this novel. And that's deeply embedded in past and present. Oh, I love oh, that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. This idea of resurrection that I love that word too. I mean, it's so true. I mean, like you said, Gran was in her head and the the advice and proverbs and things were, were there in the first one. But it does feel different here, like you're saying, because she is becoming her own person and and growing herself. But still, Gran's voice um, is so strong. And so that's why I was curious if you had someone in your life that spoke to you in this way. But I don't know, maybe you do. I, I didn't know if this was your mother's voice, but but yeah. tell me. Yes, it is absolutely my mother's voice, yeah. and it happens all the time. It does not sound like Gran's voice because my mother was French Canadian, uh, and uh, so. But I hear her voice and her hilarious sayings, which she was one for sayings. But she would me like mess them up all the time. Yeah, so she would say, you know, it takes two to tangle instead of tango. But I, you know, I'll hear two it. Two to tangle, too. Two to tangle. It's also true. Yeah, it actually yeah. kind of takes three to tangle yeah, if you think maybe. of a braid, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. But I'll hear that in my head in her, um, you know, in yes. her French Canadian accent. Uh, um, 
at a certain moment. And it's, it's a reminder to me to be more like her, yes. to have this ability to cut through whatever is moving me emotionally to see the heart of, of a thing or an interaction or a moment. Mm. Yes. And um, yes. it's, a, it's a strange gift to have to hear that voice. And it's one I also wanted to give through the, to the reader yeah. um, via Grant. Yeah. My, my own grandmother passed away before I got my book deal. And I swear the same way you're making me feel like giving me permission to embrace it because I do sometimes when I'm down about, I don't know how to do this, or I don't know how this is going to go. And it's all out of my control. She just always embraced just have fun, like be excited Aww. about it. Who cares about that stuff? And I just hear her telling me that and reminding me that all the time on this on this journey. So that I is love lovely. That. What a mm-hmm. lovely voice to have. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she must be so proud of you. Yeah. I, yes, <laughs> I think so. she would be. Uh, well, in this novel, we also have Molly's old foe, Detective Stark. And she's back, and they're, but they're working together. In The Maid, Detective Stark had Molly all wrong. But in The Mystery Guest, Stark has turned her laser-eyed focus, which is your words, uh, on Molly. And she now sees Molly in ways even Molly doesn't see herself. She's clear on her strengths, her potential for the future. But at the same time, even at the end of the novel, Stark says, why is it that I never quite know what's about to come out of your mouth? Which just made me really laugh out loud. And that mixture of clarity and surprise is such a delight for, for me and for readers. And it's a delight in a in a pairing. So how did you know that you were going to bring Stark back and what you wanted their relationship to be? Well, it's interesting because my very first draft had a different character for Stark, an entirely Uh different character who is more like an Angela Lansbury style, Uh Mary Poppins type of detective. And as it turns out, she did not make the greatest antagonist. Mm. She wasn't Mm. an antagonist at all. She was, you know, a lot more like Gran than than she was like Detective Stark. Uh And so um, it became pretty clear and my editors made it clear that there was nothing for Molly to butt up against. Um, And that, you know, that sort of duplication, we call it twinning, right? I'm an editor as well. So we call that twinning Mm -hmm. when a writer is investigating a character and sometimes they create two of the same kind. Oh, wow. Unwittingly. And that's what I'd done in in one of my early, um, early drafts and then realized, okay, we must backtrack now and bring in uh, Detective Stark again. But what I like about her reappearance here is that she grows too. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, I ask a lot of the reader in The Maid and, and this book, maybe a little less in this book, for, but, you know, when you first are introduced to Molly, she can sometimes frustrate readers. She, uh, I really ask the reader to step into her experience, to become her, yeah. and to try and understand what life might be like to see from her point of view. And to really find the social world difficult to navigate. And, you know, Stark, well, let's just say Stark (laughs) represents somebody incapable at the beginning (laughs) of understanding difference. You know, Graham says we are all different and we're all the same, right? But Stark does not embrace difference. You must act quote unquote normally or you will not be understood. If you don't fit her (laughs) metrics... You are outside them and therefore suspect. Yes. And that 
in her personality as well as her job function, you know, serves as a catalyst for a lot of the hijinks and problems that Molly finds herself in. But in the second book, we have this detective growing a little, embracing the notion that not everybody might express in the same way. Not everybody communicates in the same way. And Molly's world view might in fact be so peculiar and special that she might be able to see things that Detective Stark never could see. Mm -hmm. And that is something I was deeply interested in. You know, a character like Molly, who might sometimes be perceived as different and lesser than, Mm -hmm. showing herself through the course of action to know way more than anyone can ever give her credit for, being perceptive beyond what most of us are capable of. Yes. But just noticing different things, like you said, and I think that's what Stark realizes by the end that, you know, she is so different, but that's useful. You know, that's that's then particularly when you're trying to solve, if everybody thinks the same way, you know, you're not going to. Well, life would be a a tad boring. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) a tad. And you wouldn't solve the mystery because you 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 needed her. I want to zoom out a little. Um, you know, when we read your bio, Corinne mentioned the staggering success of The Maid. Selling one million copies is incredible. Um, but then I would imagine with that comes a lot of pressure and expectations for book two. You noted in your acknowledgments that it was, you know, you wrote The Maid, as a lot of people do with their first novel, in secret. You have no expectation. You just write it. You see what happens. Then, of course... You have the success and you said in your acknowledgments you had to do the dreaded book two, which is the most difficult of ventures. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us about that and, and approaching it and, and how you how you dealt with that, um, that staggering success and then having to turn around and, and do it again. Well, it was not easy. Yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> it's call, the dreaded part. <laughs> yes. I call book two the exquisite torture. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, for any writer. And if you can get through book two, then, okay, things aren't going to get easy. But if you can get book two, you will you will probably survive be, being a writer. Okay. Um, yeah, that. And that's kind of how I feel. Like, I have earned some sort of uh, master's right now. <laughs> yes. That is, you know. You did you it. Know, I've got my badge. Yes. Um, but it's not easy because there are expectations now. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're going to let people down if you don't do things right. Mm -hmm. And there's also, for me, there was a layer of self-doubt. There's always a layer of (laughs) self-doubt. Well, you did it once. 
Um, so, you know, do you, are, are you a one hit wonder? Maybe you can never do anything else again. This is it. This is the best you're ever going to do and nothing else uh, is going to happen. So just as I have my mother's very confident and boying voice in my head, there is the counterpart to like angel and devil of my own other sinister voice saying that I will never amount to much and that, you know, no other reader is ever going to find anything I write. Uh, appealing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of women and a lot of female writers have that extra voice and it's a burden one has to contend with. And it becomes, you know, aggravated Mm -hmm. by being in the situation of being outed as a writer, you know, (laughs) after your book one, it's not private and, and just for yourself anymore. There are other people involved in the process. And, you know, that's when you really have to find a way to be mature within your own self and, and power through the process and trust what you know. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask the question almost in the opposite way, which is to say you've already experienced with one book, the kind of success that I hope to, after a lifetime of writing novels. Yeah, me too. Right. So, (laughs) so could you have just said, like, well, I'm done. What do I, ha- I, I don't have anything to prove to anyone. I've, I've done what I wanted to do. Did you ever, did it ever occur to you to think maybe that um, it's good? I'm, I'm done? And to me, that would be like saying, okay, I'm done life now. I'm yeah. perfectly healthy. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to stop breathing. Yeah. yeah. Right Solved now, it. I'm going to, okay. <gasps> I'm not going to breathe anymore. This is my last breath. I'm finished. Everything's yeah. good. I've lived a great yeah. No, you can't. There's yeah. an instinct in you. There's a power and an engine as a writer, if you really are one, mm-hmm. that compels you to create. And if you're yeah. not, then you'll stop being a writer and you'll do something else. But that drive and that instinct, um, that curiosity about stories and about fiction, about finding truth in the real life and making it more true through make-believe is something that is highly addictive um, and that most writers uh, must respond to. It's not a choice. Mm. So if it's not a choice, which I get, because I've listened to Corinne talk about this too, but then do you change your, we were just talking to another author about this. Do you change your definition of success then um, maybe after this? Oh, that's an excellent question, Kate. And the answer is, you sure do. Yeah. And again, yeah. it's about returning to the internal. You know, mm-hmm. what satisfied you the first time about writing privately? You know, was it that moment yeah. or scene where you thought, I think I just did something here. I, I accomplished what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's finding that again the second time around. For me, I also um, took a private little joy in knowing that my writer's muscle was more developed, mm-hmm. which I, I couldn't tell until I tested it. There are yeah. things I didn't know the first time that I knew the second time. Yeah, from having um, gone through the whole thing. Yeah. From having gone through the process and through the painful, excruciating, error-making process of screwing up. <laughs> uh, and that is how we learn as writers, yes. right? You have to learn by screwing up. Well, that's what I was I, I, want, I was going to point out, too, that your answer to did you ever think about just packing it in because you had such amazing success is also the exact answer for why you don't pack it in when you've experienced failure or rejection or setback because you got it you can't mm-hmm. you can't do anything else so there's a line in the mystery guest one step at a time 
it's the only way to get anywhere in this life. Hmm. It's one of Grand's thoughts that comes to Molly, but it's a message that you also imparted on me personally at the Hamptons Whodunit Festival earlier this year. The day before that festival, I had just received my first editorial letter, which was very long, double digits, single spaced. (laughs) And I was, as you know, you're nodding. I was very overwhelmed. And I was, the good thing was I knew what my editor wanted. I had no idea if I could do it. And in the time, in the way um, that I wanted to, that she expected of me, and you were so incredibly encouraging to me. I really carried your voice with me through that first round of edits the whole time. And I not I, I cannot believe I don't have my copy of the maids over there. You wrote you can do this. I would open to that page mm-hmm. and look at your words saying you can do this and remind myself I can. I can do this. Uh, so I want to thank you for that. But I also want to ask you did that wisdom come from being both? I'm sure you were always an encouraging and gracious editor, but what did that add being on the other side of the table yeah. as the author uh, as well? I I like to think that I've always been compassionate about how difficult it is to write and how mm-hmm. you cannot separate yourself from the act of writing. And that necessitates a certain kind of vulnerability in almost every writer. However... Let's just say that when I became a writer myself, did I ever appreciate that more? You know? Exponential, right? Oh, it is so crushing. And I felt a a kind of blindness as a writer that I never experienced as uh, an editor. You know, I talk about, sometimes I use the metaphor of a labyrinth, you know, there's Mm. to explain the difference between what an editor is and what a writer is. So You know, the writer is standing before a labyrinth and she goes in and her job is to go through that entire maze and out the other side to finish the story. And when she's down there, she can see right ahead of her, but she can't see what's beyond that next bend. But the editor's on a ladder looking down into the maze Mm. and can say, if you take your story that way, you're going to get to a dead end. There be monsters. Don't do that. Go this way. And that's your best way to get to the end. But when when I was an, a writer, I missed my ladder. <laughs> I missed it so much. I couldn't see a damn thing. Yes, yes. Oh, and yeah. I, my goodness, how that makes your stomach drop out. How that, you know, tests your ability to trust yourself or just to go on through that story blindness yeah. to find mm. what you hope might be there. It feels like rummaging around in the dark for yeah. a diamond. It really yes. does. That yeah. really taught me a lot. Yes. And um, so for any writer who's going through that, and we are all going to go through it and continue to go through it, but when you're going through it for one of the first times, yeah. oh my goodness, you, you need to hear from yes. other people to say, yes. this is normal. If this it, is what you're feeling, it's good. It was such fortunate timing for me because on the one hand, I I'm, I almost didn't say anything because I was so full of shame for having I, exactly. gotten it so wrong. And then I just, for some reason, did say something and it was the opposite. It was, I was met with, 
oh, this, oh yeah, that's how it goes. That's how it is. Mm -hmm. It's also just confusing because someone wanted to buy your book, which is the dream of all writers. And yet you get this editorial letter back and you're like, wait, I I thought, what did you you like about it? I thought you liked it. What did you like about it? Is there anything good about it? Exactly my overarching question. So what did you like? Why did you buy this? What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. But so when you talk to your authors now, having been on the other side, does it has it changed the way you communicate back to them or no? You, you're like it's having, still just a different role. Yeah, I guess right? it is. You're just on your ladder, and you're right. You're not. You're not in the labyrinth. So you can. You're just approaching it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, then it's up to the author. I mean, I right. will be as sensitive as I need to be, but the feedback is always yeah. going to be. The feedback, yeah, um, and sometimes that can be pain- painful for yes, for a writer to hear, or confusing, or a whole mix of emotions. I just know it's going to create a stew. Yeah, it's going That's to create right. a big emotional stew in, in <laughs> yes. a human being who I care about and a writer yeah. whose career I am invested in. Yes, yes. that's right. Um, yeah. But the stew is is nourishing, you yeah. know, and it must be done. We must cook it up. Oh yes. my gosh. Absolutely. It's nourishing. I love this. Oh yeah. This. Well, I, now on the other side of four rounds, I I can't even imagine what mm. that my book was nothing before it went through exactly. the Exactly. Which you never know when you're going through that process because no. it's you have no idea, but then out the other side you're like, "Wow, oh. that yeah, my book is better now." Oh, better. You're nourished. Begin to, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm not going to be able to guess this. We we always ask our authors what's their sign and do you relate to it? Because we are into astrology here. Shocker. And I'm trying to guess. I don't know. Corinne's better at guessing, but now that I've been listening, I don't know. So I'm excited because I don't know. Usually I snoop and figure it out, but you didn't. I didn't. Couldn't get any clues here. All right. Well. First, I will say, mm. I had a birthday yesterday. <gasps> oh, Scorpio. Okay. Yes. The I am sign. such a Scorpio. Such oh, a Scorpio. Yeah. And I, I think Molly it. is too, actually, now that I think about that. That's mm. the first time I've thought that, but I think she is. I oh, I love that. that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, I live intensely and passionately. Mm-hmm. I care deeply for mm. the people who I care about. I can be impenetrable if if I feel threatened. Yes. Um, I think all of these things are are true of Scorpios, and most certainly, I think I typify one. Oh, we're not, yes. And people are afraid of us, and they kind of should be, and they kind of shouldn't be. Yes, that's, a, that's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell. You, I'm an Aries. Aries are not. Aries are very drawn to Scorpio. It is yes, not, yes. and vice versa. Yes. Aries are great. I have yeah. a lot of good Aries friends. See, I like. I like that. them too. I like Aries. A yeah. Lot. Well. Uh, we want to wrap up with asking you what you're loving right now. Any books you're reading? Any um, movies, uh, TV shows that you're watching? Anything you want to share with us that you are uh, obsessed with right now? Well, one of the great gifts of being a writer yes. is that you often get galleys. You get early mm-hmm. copies of books. And um, I love being one of those early readers who gets to read before everyone else. So and uh, yeah, it's fun. So I have recently read End of Story by A.J. Finn, who wrote oh, Woman in the Window. Yeah, Window. This is his follow-up book, and it'll be coming out next year. And it was so crisply, deliciously, darkly wonderful. Mm-hmm. He's like 
Patricia Highsmith reinvented for the modern age. Mm. And he has these turns of phrase. He has this ability to like summarize a character, you know, in three lines and you know them, you know them the way, you know, your best friend or that Mm. person you work with at the office or so on. And I, I, I just, he's a wordsmith. Yes. um, And, and such a good plotter. Mm-hmm. And I found End of Star to be delicious, and I cannot wait for readers delicious. to discover it. Oh, that's mm. very exciting. That's very Corinne exciting. and I, I met him. Know. We went to an author yes. event with him when his first book came out. So Yes. And I asked him something. You did I ask asked him, him something about the creative process, and he said – are you a lawyer? And I, I, I actually am. <laughs> he, he was wow. thinking, remember this. I, he thinking, but he was thinking I was trying to trap him into like, do you borrow? He had said something about, that's what it was about um, how he would read, I think it was 10 of French and like try to like absorb it. Um, and that's what I was actually asking about. It wasn't going in the legal direction, but it was a very funny moment. So that's hilarious. That mm-hmm. is exciting to hear. The talk about a pressure of a, a follow-up. So Indeed. I can't Indeed. wait. Indeed. And I, I think can't. he's done it. I think readers yes. are going to love it. Love that. Amazing. As have you. The mystery guest is fantastic. Yes. I love um, this, the structure and, of course, having Grand back uh, and and Molly. So. And thank young you so Molly. Much, I love young Molly. So yes. oh, thank you. Yes. Thank you so thank much you. for having me on. 